Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the battle for triggering Article 50 and how the Labour Party is finally woken up to its role in the Brexit debate. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, James Blitz, our white editor, plus Marcus Roberts from YouGov, and political commentator Aisha Hazarika. Thank you all for joining. Parliament returned after party conference season this week and all eyes were on Brexit once more. Theresa May's government has been keen to trigger the Article 50 divorce proceedings without giving Parliament too much of a say in the process. But it hasn't quite gone to plan. The Labour Party has forced a debate on Wednesday about Article 50 but crucially the vote isn't binding. Plus a high court challenge has begun to force Parliament to give its stamp of approval on the process. George Parker, one of the things I found most odd about this whole debate is that sovereignty was such a big part of the EU referendum, taking back control and repowering Parliament. Yet there's many Brexiters who actually don't want Parliament to do that. They just want to get on with it and trigger Article 50 without giving MPs a say. Why? Well, as you say, one of the people who's doing that is David Davis, the Minister for Brexit, who's a keen champion of parliamentary sovereignty. I mean, there are basically two reasons why this is the case. One is that uh, the Prime Minister, probably with some justification, doesn't want to give away her negotiating position far in advance of the activation of Article 50 and the start of formal talks. I think that's a reasonable view to take. But the second thing, of course, is she's worried that she'll lose the vote in the House of Commons because once you set out what you want and it becomes clear that you're aiming for an exit, which probably involves leaving the single market, leaving the customs union as well, that that will give opponents of Brexit, the Remainers, the Ramoners, as David Davis has called them. Romaniacs as well. The Romaniacs, a cause to try and vote down Article 50 because they'll say, we're not trying to frustrate the will of the people. We just don't like the terms of the exit that Theresa May has agreed on. And of course, the idea of the government's negotiating position being defeated in the House of Commons before the negotiations even start will be a total fiasco. James Blitz, I think the danger is the government is holding its cards so close to its chest there might not actually be anything on them at this stage and that watching David Davis in the Commons this week, it did slightly concern me that they're giving very broad contours of what they want from Brexit and how they're going to do it. Is there a plan there? I agree with you. They are holding their cards very close to their chest, too close to their chest. Clearly, first of all, something quite big has happened this week, which is that, as George said, Theresa May wanted to have a very controlled executive-led process. Parliament has stood up and said, OK, we're not asking for a vote on Article 50. What they're asking is a debate about the terms on which Britain will leave. Now, as you say, David Davis and the Prime Minister have actually given very little information. They've set out a broad, overarching framework, and of course it means leaving ECJ jurisdiction, and there's something about immigration control. The key thing now, and I've been to hear what George thinks about it, is that having said we're going to have a debate, is there pressure to publish a green paper? Because MPs have got very little information on which to hold this debate. There's very little detail. There's lots of stuff that came out before the referendum, the Treasury paper and so on. But actually that was tainted by the debate about in or out, remain or leave. And if you look at what Keir Starmer, the opposition Brexit secretary, was saying, he's been very clever. He said, number one, 
we're going to get the debate. Now he's going to move on to the second phase, green paper. Once he's got a green paper, I think he'll move on to the mm. third phase, which is vote. I don't think there will be a green paper. I don't think there'll be a white paper either. There was an idea that was knocking around in the summer and indeed a bit later on. And I think Theresa May, despite her professed interest in good government and the need for full consultation on a range of issues, this is one issue where she doesn't want to have a full consultation. And it falls into the rubric I was discussing earlier, the idea of putting your ideas into the public domain before the negotiation starts. So no, I don't think she's going to publish a green paper. And I agree with James, it's becoming increasingly frustrating for Parliament. This is one of the biggest decisions facing the country for a generation. And yet they are being cut out of the process. And I think the tension is really going to grow over the next few months. And we've certainly seen that this week, that MPs, even Brexit backing MPs, some have said this is not how it should be done. Now, people on the other side say, well, Parliament voted six times, I believe, for the referendum in various different guises, but it did not endorse any particular interpretation of Brexit. But there's no easy answer to that because unless you go around and survey every single one of those 17.1 million people and ask why exactly they voted for Brexit, it's interpretations. It's trying to figure that out. And the thing that I've picked up on from Downing Street is they're concerned about a potential vote on a hard or soft Brexit. That if there's a vote on Parliament saying we're going to cut all ties and then someone puts a motion saying, well, actually, let's have a vote on staying in the single market or staying in the customs union or something, then you've got these MPs have endorsed something that is diametrically opposed to the British people who want to cut migration because Parliament's views broadly are to the left of the British public on this issue. Yes, don't forget, what was it, something like two-thirds of MPs actually wanted Britain to stay in the EU. And I think, to be fair to David Davis and Theresa May, they're right to suspect, as you were just alluding to there, that some MPs would use the opportunity to vote on the government's negotiating strategy as a way of frustrating progress towards exit. And of course, they wouldn't portray it like that. They'd say they just want to talk about the strategy. But the fact is, as you say correctly, if there was a vote and the government's negotiating strategy was rejected that would throw a huge spanner in the works and probably derail the whole process. There are, James, a few mavericks in Parliament, the Labour MP David Lammy, the Liberal Democrat Tim Farron, who happily say they want to stop Brexit, and they're doing this to stop the process and to overturn it, have a second referendum, you name it. And that's obviously cause for concern for a broad number of MPs that feel that the people have spoken, we do need to do this. But the sense I've got is that Parliament has broadly come round to this idea that Brexit is going to happen, particularly on the Labour front bench and the Conservative front bench. So it is a minority who actually are saying, hang on a minute, we don't want this to happen. Yes, I think that's right. Looking at the debate yesterday, there are very few people who are standing up and saying, let's reverse the whole thing, let's have a referendum, no Article 50. The debate has moved into the area of the how, what are the negotiating terms? It's moved into that space because Theresa May at party conference did something that she said she wouldn't do, which is she gave a running commentary. She actually set out a number of hard positions which have had a real-world impact. That is the problem. If you stand back and try and look strategically, is Theresa May today where she would have wanted to be, she isn't. Because by setting out some of those terms in the way she did, she's had a number of impacts. One, she's got Parliament up in arms. Two, she's had a very severe impact on Sterling. You've got the whole row that suddenly emerged on the retail side of things with Marmite and all the rest of it. There's suddenly a sense, a very small sense emerging that actually this thing isn't just a slow progress towards a controlled exit. This has got real world impacts. And tactically, there must be people around her who wonder, wouldn't it have been better if we just said at party conference, we'll trigger Article 50, kept things a bit lighter and just moved on and kept control? She isn't where she ought to be at this point. Because we've had a pretty pan-gloss in view of Brexit 
Brexit so far, George, and a lot of the Brexiters have said, oh, it's simple, you just repeal it all and it'll all be fine. But there are those two things, James, that really make it feel as if the impact is being felt. Number one is sterling, and that's mm. going to have numerous effects, some good, many of them bad. And then also the retail question, if you go into your local Tesco this week, you might have struggled to find a box of PG tips or Marmite because Unilever is in a row because they want to jack up prices and other supermarkets have said there could be as much as a 5% rise in food prices here. There's a general hardening of the stance, I think, since Theresa May's conference speech. And it does feel as if she's on this path. And Europe has also looked at it and seen that she is on this hard Brexit route to uh, leaving the EU. Yeah, I think she did give away more than she needed to at the party conference. I think she felt she had to throw some red meat to the party and she's got herself into a bit of a pickle. My fear is that this is just the start. What we've seen with Sterling this week is the start because what we haven't quite got our heads around yet is what happens the moment she does present her negotiating demands in the middle of a French general election. What happens if the candidates say immediately, non, it's not possible? Then you're in a standoff where Theresa May is going to find it very hard to compromise because she's got the Tory Eurosceptics on her back and very hard for French politicians to compromise as well. That will really spook the markets. I've just come from a select committee hearing with Boris Johnson who was talking about the fact that we'll end up with a better trade deal with Europe than we've got at the moment and saying that the prophets of doom who said that everything was going to go wrong have been proved completely wrong. Well, we sometimes feel like we might be operating in a bit of a parallel universe at Westminster. And my concern is things are going to get worse. One thing I would say about the negotiating position, I was speaking to a minister about it this week, is the question of how much more does she say or should she say when she triggers Article 50? There is a view around the cabinet table that actually she said absolutely enough and she shouldn't say any more. When she triggers Article 50, she just says, look, we want to have good access to the single market. We're going to pull out of the European Court of Justice jurisdiction. We will have control over our immigration and leave it at that. And I think actually that's probably not a bad approach and that will certainly have the effect of dampening down some of the market fears we've seen this week. There's lots of pressure groups in Westminster at the moment trying to affect the Brexit process, but the one that I think Theresa's most worried about, uh, George, is leave means leave, which is the most hardcore rump of Brexiters. And they basically want to say, if you can't get a deal, you should leave and revert to WTO terms. Now, it might not be a huge group, but it's certainly the one that speaks to that core influence of Britain can make it on its own. It doesn't need to do a deal. And they will be pressuring her to say, if you don't get a deal, if you're in that situation mm. where the French say no, then they will say, well, just leave. And that's when the markets and the pound and everything could really start to get spooked. Exactly. At the moment, the leave means leave people are the Praetorian Guard of Theresa May. They're incredibly loyal, incredibly supportive, cheered on by the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph and others. But as you say, the moment things start to look difficult, the moment there's any hint of the government compromising, they'll be on her back. And the problem then is, as you say, they talk about reverting to WTO rules. There's a complication there, incidentally, which is that we're, we, not, in the we're not in the WTO as an independent member. We would have to reapply. Any one of the WTO members could veto it. So it's not just the 27 European countries who might have an interest in doing it. How about the Russians, for example? <laughs> it's by no means easy. And the moment the markets start to contemplate either us leaving in a sort of WTO format or indeed leaving without any deal whatsoever, the events of this week, I fear, will look like a light flurry. The other thing we've had, James, is the High Court legal challenge to this. Now, this was begun by Gina Miller, who's a fund manager and banked by various metropolitan elites, I think it's fair to say. And they have been trying to do what Labour's also done, which is to give Parliament a say. They are trying to take on the government's official legal advice to say that Article 50 must be voted on and must have a binding vote in Parliament. Is this going to get anywhere? Because it looks as if it could be quite fine and it could lead to some kind of constitutional crisis because the top QCs in the country are over in Holborn right now debating this? I don't think it will. 
I may be wrong, I'm not a constitutional expert, but I would simply be astonished if the legal world took on the Prime Minister on an issue like this. Let's be absolutely clear. On the question of Parliament having a vote on Article 50, I don't think there is a case. I think their royal prerogative is fine. The question is, does the Commons have a right to debate the negotiating terms? I think there, this week has established a lot, and a lot of progress has been made. And also the fact that a debate has been conceded and that Labour is putting the focus on that takes the pressure off the Supreme Court to do what these plaintiffs wanted to do. I still think, looking back, the key point is, and listening to George, I think George made a lot of really good points, she should have been more modest in what she said at party conference and kept a tighter control of everything and then come out at the Article 50 invocation point with the broad position. I think she went too soon with that. She's opened up a can of worms and it might derail as a result. I yeah. think that's the problem she's got. I mean, Seb and I were at the Tory conference. It was interesting, actually, when we were there, it felt like she was in total control of the party. The message was quite clear and she got pretty good press during the course of it. And it wasn't, on the face of it, a badly handled conference. But the fallout in the real world afterwards, whether it's the European reaction or the market's reaction, was pretty intense. And I think that's quite interesting because that was quite a controlled political environment and the markets reacted badly. We're about to enter into very uncontrolled political terrain. And I think that's where the problems already start. The other thing as well that I've noticed is that the Eurosceptic press, of course the FT is not in that camp, has really ramped up its rhetoric this week that we've seen The Sun, The Daily Mail and The Daily Telegraph who are ardent advocates of Brexit. Now they're talking about this language of Remainers, Ramoners, Romaniacs. And I think there is a danger as well that people fall into this trap that you're talking about this bubble, this Westminster bubble, this political bubble, or even this Brexit bubble. And I think one of the most striking things I saw in Parliament this week was the debate on Syria and the tragic situation there, where up the corridor in Westminster Hall, MPs were debating whether we need a new royal yacht, Britannia. When you're in that situation, it gives a very stunted view of what's actually going on here. Yes, I think that's probably true. I think people who including the Financial Times, I should say, had campaigned for us to remain in the European Union. You have to be careful about how we frame things because we can't be seen to be fighting a last war. And I think people have a duty to try and find the best route out of what some people think is a bad situation. Having said all that, I think some of the tone of the media coverage this week, I'm thinking particularly of the half page of the front page of the Daily Mail, which said, damn the Ramonas. I thought that was actually quite a sinister editorial line from the Daily Mail. And I think the other thing is you start to see that the language has become more extreme as the pound has wobbled. And what I thought I could start to see this week was people starting to get their excuses in. Because the fact is, if Brexit goes wrong, and let's all hope it doesn't, it will always be someone else's fault. It's a bit like the left of the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn. It will always be someone else's fault. In this case, the scapegoats are already being lined up. It's the, it's the Bramonas, it's the Liberal elite. You know, it's not going to be their fault. I very much agree with you. I think one can take the view Brexit's going to happen, one accepts the result, but one's got to also remember that there is 48% that did vote to remain. And this isn't a situation in which the 52, and it's only actually a small part of the 52, when you look at the breakdown of the voting, if you look at the Lord Ashcroft exit poll that was done on the day of the referendum, only 33% of people actually put immigration who voted leave at the top of their concerns. So there is a sense that what's happening here is the Mail and other papers are thrusting a sort of result onto people which isn't really there. The 48% do have to be listened to. 
one of the more striking moments in all of the Brexit kerfuffle this week has been the return of the Labour Party. After spending the summer infighting about its leadership and future direction, it appears to be somewhat getting its act together. Crucially, the appointment of Sir Keir Starmer as Shadow Brexit Secretary, he's the former Director of Public Prosecutions to Labour MP, will give the process some much-needed scrutiny. But does the party yet have a coherent position on Brexit, the single market and immigration? It's not really clear. So Aisha Hazarika, Keir began his tenure with a very good interview on the Andrew Marr show by announcing Labour was not wedded to the free movement of people. This is one of the big motivations behind Brexit regards of what some people say. But then Diane Abbott, the slightly implausible new Shadow Home Secretary, refused to accept this point in an interview of her own. How split is the party over this question of immigration and Brexit, do you think? Well, then a third position emerged with Emily Thornbury when she was asked about it. And it's not a question of whether immigration should come down. Immigration just will come down. Now, I think what this masks is that there are still real divisions within the Labour Party over the thorny issue of immigration. Historically, we've always thought immigration was a good thing. When we eventually started to listen to the fact that a lot of people had problems, we could get ourselves to say, look, there are some economic problems around immigration's wage depreciation, all of that. We were comfortable in that language, but we're not very comfortable getting into the other bits of immigration, like cultural problems and all that kind of stuff. So I think these fault lines still remain very much within the PLP. Kia got off to an absolutely cracking start and I have to say that dossier he provided with the 170 questions for the remaining days before Article 50 is triggered and we leave the EU was very, very good. People were, I mean, not just Labour people, but pretty sceptical journalists I spoke to were like, wow, it's like the Labour Party has actually remembered what it's like to be a functional opposition. But remember, that's just been a couple of days. Exactly, Marcus. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. Labour did manage to trigger a debate in the House of Commons this week when the government has tried to avoid all scrutiny on Article 50 so far as we talked about earlier. And it was crucially Labour proposing this motion the government then amended that led to Parliament actually being able to talk about Brexit. So that's some progress. But how can the party keep that momentum up and ensure it is speaking for its voters who backed Brexit or remain and care about things like workers' rights? Well, it's only progress if you're grading on a curve. And one we should remember in all of this that the Labour Party this week, as you said, forced a debate. Now, there are things that matter in politics and then there are things that matter in politics to SW1. And this was definitely the latter, not the former. We shouldn't forget either that in the latest YouGov voting intention poll, we have the Conservatives on 39% and the Labour Party on 30 And if anything, that's probably being generous to there the Labour the Party. There was the ICM poll that had Labour um, 17 points behind the Conservatives. Precisely. And that's why it's important to remember the difference between the things that matter and the things that don't. The Labour Party this week managed to engage in some very basic parliamentary process and didn't fall flat on its face, shooting itself at the same time. As a consequence, Westminster is practically bowled over by how extraordinary a feat this is. None of this will actually change anything. The fundamentals remain the same for the Labour Party. It is on the wrong side of the public opinion on immigration. It is on the wrong side of public opinion on the economy. It is on the wrong side of public opinion on national security. These are the things that actually matter to voters. And whether or not the Labour Party can function as an opposition in terms of tabling questions in the House of Commons has very little relevance to how voters will decide. 
You say that Labour's on the wrong side of immigration, but as Aisha just said, what side is on immigration? That we've got all these different positions. You've got Keir Starmer saying that free movement has to end. You've got Emily Thorman saying it will end with actually no base of showing how it's going to come down. And then you've got the shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott who's saying that we need to stop demonising immigrants and that it's all the Tories' fault, but not actually saying whether it needs to come down or not. And that's why I thought that James Blitz's reporting in the FT yesterday was very interesting on this, showing, again, with some YouGov data, how public opinion is clearly, as Boris Johnson would put it, pro-cake and pro-eating it too, staying in the single market and regaining control of the border with regard to EU immigration. However, it's difficult to see how that actually happens in practice. And I think that what Labour MPs really want when they talk about a deal on Article 50 is they want to stay in the single market and they would be prepared to give up border control for it. I think that's right. And look, everyone is trying to process what Brexit means and everyone has their own interpretation of what it means. But I think to your average person out there in the country, far, far away from the planet that is SW1, a large fault line of the whole EU referendum was immigration. It was the single issue wherever you went around the country. When you said, how are you going to vote? you ended up having a discussion about immigration, whether it was loved or loathed. And I think the Labour Party has got to... I mean, Keir's started off well, and I think he's in the right position. Interestingly, he was leading a big review into immigration for Corbyn before he got this job. And what the Labour Party should be doing is what the Conservatives haven't been doing. The Conservatives kind of rushed off into kind of lots of bad slogans, which scared everybody, were terribly xenophobic, and now they've kind of rolled back from them. What Labour should be doing is, look, we're going to have the kind of sensible, grown-up, listening conversation with the country about immigration to kind of get into the guts of what people's fears are, whether they're real, whether they're not real. This is what Labour should be doing. Aisha's absolutely right, because where public opinion on this issue is, is in a place somewhat different from both the Labour Party and from the government. The public are quite clear that they want EU migration to come down in real terms. But the public doesn't necessarily want high-skill workers to be penalised in entering this country. And the public definitely don't want, and there's no evidence for it in in opinion polling, for example, foreign students to be penalised for entering this country. Those are positions that the government has taken. So there is an argument and an open space in British politics for a common sense approach to immigration, which involves yes to high skill migration, yes to foreign student migration, and yes to limitations on economic migrants from within the European Union. And that ground is currently unoccupied by both main parties. Aisha, what would you say the view is amongst both the PRP and the Labour Party on whether there should be another referendum or not? Because there are some mavericks in the party, such as David Lammy, who are actively going out there and saying, we need to overturn this, and it definitely verges into patronising voters' territory. Other things they might have a point on. What do you feel about how united is the party over? We're all Brexiters now, as a Tory minister, I think, once said. I think the majority of the PLP get the fact that the people have spoken and that... A lot of the Labour people have spoken. Well, I think that's why they're so scared. And I think there's actually quite a kind of London divide amongst the PLP. MPs who are more London in their thinking are sort of, right, let's get together and fight this and let's use every little bit of chicanery and trickery we can through Parliament. But I think if you're a Northern MP, particularly in one of those seats where, okay, you may be sitting in a nice fat majority, but the majority of your constituents voted basically for what Aaron Banks was putting forward, you're going to be terrified. So I think the number of people, the sort of David Lammies, I think they are in the minority. But I think the Labour Party has got to be very, very careful about how far they push the line about using Parliament to frustrate the process. Because UKIP is breathing down the necks of Labour MPs in lots of our heartland seats. 
It's very interesting, this, Marcus, because I think we talked about this before the referendum, that two of the most prominent Labour Eurosceptics were John Mann and Frank Field, who both are mavericks, but both have an innate sense of what Labour voters care about. They represent very different parts of the UK compared to most of the Labour front bench now, which is essentially an M25 shadow cabinet, that everyone there is from North London, West London, very few people from the outside of that, and that might feed into those problems about Labour's overall poll ratings you talked about earlier. Oh, exactly. And you can add to that list the indefatigable Gisela Stewart and her superb organiser Caroline Badley in Birmingham Edgbaston, one of the most marginal seats in the country, in which MPs and Labour activists of that ilk understood what voter concerns were and reacted accordingly and understandably. But what is really striking in all of this is the fact that the Labour Party, as Aisha alluded to, still would quite like Brexit to go away. And the almost delight that you see Labour activists and the Labour Twitterati, as well as Labour MPs at times, taking in every fall and stumble that the government makes in the EU negotiation process is really concerning for the country as well as for Labour's political positioning. Marcus and I are in a lather of agreement, particularly on the Twitterati. And I think Labour MPs got to be very, very careful about what it looks like for them to be teaming up with lots of QCs and loyally type people in what looks like Labour is trying to frustrate the will of the people because that will not end well and that's it for this week's episode thank you very much to all my guests for joining we'll be back next week for another installment of ft politics thank you for listening if you enjoyed listening to this podcast you might like to try our world weekly podcast which is presented by me gideon rachman the ft's chief foreign policy commentator Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.